I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. In our last episode of Making a Difference, we spoke with Thomas Clinch of Civic Mind in Hartford, Connecticut, about his work in social enterprise and community development. But it's not all beer and skittles. Following the conduct of a competitive process for redevelopment of a local sporting venue, Dillon Stadium, Thomas has launched legal proceedings, alleging a corrupted process at his local council. In this episode, we discuss the background and why such issues are important, not just for Hartford, Connecticut, but communities the world over. We touched on your approach to the city in 2013. What happened? Well, the short answer is I proved the viability of the project. And I get this. At the time, I was 26 years old pitching this idea. And I was able to raise private money to match money the city had. And once I did that, and I established these plans to bring these teams and all this, city officials solicited me for bribes, basically saying, and it was wild, was it was multiple officials asking for different things, not realizing each other were asking me. So now as a 26-year-old who's just trying to do this work, I'm like in this very bizarre situation that I would never think is a thing. When I refused to cooperate with any of them, I didn't really know, obviously, how to handle that. I've never been in any sort of situation like this. I've never had any sort of legal situation, anything like that. I ended up having to work with the Federal Bureau of Investigation and had hired attorneys who like were trying to guide me through this. Again, I'm 26, which is still still very green in this space, right? I'm just very much a do-gooder and like figuring it out with the best of intentions. And the long story short there was the private guys who replaced me then embezzled all the money that we had raised. They get convicted of money laundering and fraud. City officials are fired. A new mayor comes in. And now we're in a second iteration of the same thing where the new mayor put this project out the bid again, but the bid was rigged. So the first court case was dismissed against the city of Hartford, not against the private actors, because of a statute saying taxpayers cannot be held responsible for unethical, immoral, or illegal acts of government officials. Right. Which, here's the twist in the story, was while I was going through that initial litigation, one of the legal partners, one of the lawyers in my law firm started to run as the new mayor of the city of Hartford. So on the back end of my court case, one of my lawyers became the mayor on the other side and was successful in dismissing a case that he allegedly was involved with, right? So it's very messy. None of it's flattering for the parties involved. And it's really the backdrop of this is a systemic problem. So to summarize that piece of work that started in 2013, the suggestion is that some favors were solicited from you. Your contract was terminated. 
another team was brought in. That ended with city officials leaving and charges being laid against members of the consortium that had been brought in and your action was unsuccessful because of a statute that said that the citizens can't be liable for the misdoings, if you like, of public officials. Is that kind of how that landed? Yeah, that's as simply stated as I think you can get. Truthfully, the ruling I understood and I think is fair, (laughs) very unfortunate for me, right? But like, I'm glad that statute exists because ultimately like my plan was anything that I quote unquote won from that litigation, I was just going to invest back into this project anyway. So it didn't really matter to me. Everybody was ultimately held accountable and life goes on. Right, yeah. live to fight another day type thinking. Yeah. So, so then the city moved on and it's between the city and a development corporation and there's a whole lot of complexity around potential conflicts of interest and who's managing this process that probably we would take another episode to unpack. But one would expect certain governance arrangements in the development of a piece of public land. We might talk to that shortly. So what happened next? in terms of the city putting out our proposal for the redevelopment? So you're already into some of the complexity here is because it's city property and the state asked to, the state development agency asked the city if they wanted help to develop it. But all those letters were all closely coordinated to, I'll say, quote unquote, allegedly manufacture a public procurement process. And that public procurement process was created because that was the only way to secure state bond money to execute the project the city wanted to see happen. So what we are alleging is all of this, is that all of this was a charade, all of this was a sham process. And here is what actually gives us the standing to be fighting about it is the state reached out to me directly to bid on the project. So on the back end, I did a Freedom of Information Act request because everything seemed super weird, right? Like the bid process being, we want to design, develop, and build a stadium. Please submit your proposals due in 28 days. What government would say you have less than a month to come up with a solution to a dilapidated stadium? And it was so on its face absurd that submitting this Freedom of Information Act produced all these documents that made it more absurd and demonstrably absurd. So to understand, and there's a couple of, at least two and potentially more issues. And I get it from the other side that sometimes when you're procuring goods or services on behalf of government, you have to talk to the market first to find out what you're buying because you don't want, there's no public interest in government officials putting out a a tender that's ill-informed. But then at some point you need to put the shutters down and put aside any previous conversation and start with a clean slate. Is that a fair thing? On its face of what you're describing, absolutely fair. It assumes that the public officials are operating with integrity. Yeah. And so this FOI that you did, the suggestion is that the emails, and these matters will be tested by the court. It's not for us to determine, but the suggestion is that the interactions between the public officials and one of the particular bid teams went further than fact-finding that may have been leading to an arrangement. 
yeah, six months before the bid process, they were all together in an email thread saying, quote, our own plans for the stadium offer the best promise of getting the project online, right? Like they established that this is a working group. They built out the budget, all of it tracks, you know, and here's the thing about corruption is everyone thinks it's this very complicated Illuminati in the shadows type thinking. And it's not, it's usually just gross arrogance. It's never particularly sophisticated. It's never particularly smart, at least not in my experience. It's always so straightforward because it's so poorly well thought out. And a lot of times it's in a specific market that they know even less about. So all it takes is an astute observer. And in my case, a little bit of experience in a first go around to sniff out that like, this doesn't make any sense. Like what's happening here makes no sense at all. So what we were talking about, Thomas, was a 15,000-seat stadium. One would expect, and I've always thought in sort of public administration, if you like, that a measure of a good project is one where the pre-planning is so good that what eventually gets built is very similar physically, socially, financially to what was in the business case. And if you do that planning... But I did hear you say before that once the business case was developed and the tender proposal went out, there were 28 days to respond to a proposal with a budget of how much? The proposal, the RFP, asked for people to produce the financing. So nobody came in. Yeah. And this group that won asked for $10 million. Like, we'll do this for $10 million. And we came in and said, we have private investors, we'll pay for it. So it made no sense for the state government to say, yeah, we'll definitely pay $10 million to you guys when this other group is willing to pay for it. And here's the difference between the models was, we wanted to develop this as a nonprofit facility that then would have professional rent paying for-profit tenants. In their model, They want to run it as a for-profit facility and require a certain level to make that investment worth it. And they would then own all revenue streams that come into it. None of it made any sort of sense for the community itself. So the business model would be that if it was profitable, there's a revenue stream, but presumably there's some kind of risk if the seats aren't filled. Sort of, but not even that. It was the measure of success, and now this is just me talking as one guy through my lens, the measure of success for the politicians involved was the development of a stadium because they could run on this election issue of, look what we've delivered. We've delivered you a professional sports team. The outcome of that was irrelevant because I'm only here for a few more years and its collapse will not exist in my time. There's no risk to the politician to have done this. There's no exit strategy for the community. So that is why you're like, if you think about it that selfishly, that's the simplest answer. It really is that simple. Who cares if the team goes under in five years? I won't be the mayor anymore. It's somebody else's problem. To be very specific about part of the systemic problem or a specific tactic of the systemic problem is building stadiums in an election year. I'm not really sure the public policy that needs to be enacted to be like, this isn't a thing we do, but this needs to be a thing that Connecticut figures out that Stadium projects of this level, these types of capital projects, they are long-lasting. They are multi-generational. So 
it's a finely tuned thing. And this is a process that has resulted in a semi-professional soccer team called Hartford Athletic occupying Dillon Stadium off the back of a tender process that was where the three tenders were given 28 days to respond. That's correct. You've subsequently lodged a further legal complaint with the courts. What's the basis of that complaint? The basis of our complaint is fraud, conspiracy to commit fraud, bid rigging, antitrust. You know, they, they were able to put in all these sweeteners where they have the exclusivity for all commercial soccer, rugby, and lacrosse operations, right? Not only are you given public money to develop a public venue, but now you are monopolizing any commercial activity that can occur there, including commercial activity that you may want in the future, not anything you even do right now. They don't do lacrosse. They don't do rugby. So they just wanted to preserve that ability to make that money. A couple of important notes I would say about around some of this modeling is one, a fundamental issue with why this community project and the development of this and the bond funding and all that is so uh, skewed and why it's not in the public interest is because the board responsible for allocating that money, they're all appointees of the governor and the board itself is not reflective of the community it serves. So there's no real democratic process to the selection and no real critical thinking to the solution. It's a political body that is given money to support the reelection of their governor. So the model of public development doesn't make any sense. So appointment to the board is basically by grace and favor. And you have to be a Absolutely. member of a particular cohort to get on that board. Yeah. And, and it's in large part, a lot of head nodding, very ceremonial. There's not a lot of dissent that goes on. No sort of rigorous debate, uh, no sort of critical thinking. It's just, we're doing what we're told type deal. And this is a disservice to Harvard Athletic themselves. Without that type of critical thinking, you don't get the best product out of the eventual winner of the bid. And in this case, it's Harford Athletic, right? So had Harford Athletic been tried and tested, had they been battle tested by the community, they would have ultimately built a better business going into it. Now, there's only a few ways you make money in American semi-professional soccer or minor league soccer. It's either a real estate play where the stadium itself is the lost leader and the surrounding development and that commercial activity is what actually is the money. That's not the case here because it's surrounded by a public park and the rest of it's infill. Yep. Uh, so there's no real estate play. Another is you are owned by a parent company, a major league soccer franchise that pays all of your operating costs. And you serve as a farm team. You're effectively like an event that goes on there. And the third thing, third way, and they didn't do that. They're independently owned, so they're covering their own operating model. And the third way is you are exceptionally proficient in the soccer industry in a way in which you are buying and selling players and into the youth infrastructure, of which none of these guys are. Nobody has ever been involved in professional sports before. They're hiring their kids to be the marketing director. Like None of this makes any sort of sense from a practical business sense. So the writing is on the wall that this entire thing is terminally unsustainable from both sides of it. And because of their I'm going to say lack of experience, but one would say incompetence. They did not develop the venue that is necessary to be profitable anyway. Because they cut corners in this, they did not get all the amenities they needed in that. 
it's only a 5,000 seat venue. If you have oh. 16 home games, so say 20, if we're including whatever, with 5,000 seats, your inventory comes out to, and I, you know, I did the math at one point based on their pro forma, and it came out to something like a full sellout for every game at $32 a ticket for a minor league soccer team that's a total startup in a venue that is only a $15 million venue, which in our area is effectively a division three college teams venue. There's nothing commercially valuable about sponsoring or experiencing this game. And because of our public interest advocacy around this and all these investigations that have occurred, you're not really that marketable of a thing. It's been in the headlines around election violations and improper bidding and improper spending and all these different things. Uh, Three different commissions have whacked them, right? So what corporation wants to put their name on your team after that cloud of corruption exists around you? I guess the parallel I'm thinking, Thomas, is that Jeff Bezos and Amazon set off this bidding war between a number of cities and states about headquarters. How does that play out? And is there a link with that to what we've been talking about? It's cut from the same cloth. It's the same type of abuse of community. And an industry that's emerging with us is logistics, are these headquarters. And we have a massive Amazon warehouse right outside uh, Harvard. It's in our metropolitan area. And the reason for us having this is because uh, we're between Harvard and New York and have an international airport. So logistics has become like an emerging industry here, which I say industry, it's giant warehouses and minimum wage staff. And it's, again, hate to bash my state, but it's capitalist, opportunistic, and it's abusive. It is culturally defining for us. The parallel is there. That becomes really interesting then in terms of what does the business case look like when government goes into a deal with the private sector? And I mean, we've got a similar issue in Melbourne with a little event called the Formula One Grand Prix, where state government Uh, doesn't release the commercial information because it's commercial and confidence. And there's always this element of trust. Well, is handing over a public park for two months to run this event, plus all the costs, a public value? I digress. What I was hearing from you is maybe part of the business case might be, well, do these people pay a reasonable wage to the workers? Is it a social good that these jobs are provided? Yeah, I mean, for us, we're such a part of the American war machine in Connecticut with Pratt and Whitney and Electric Boat. We build the nuclear submarines for this military here in Connecticut. We justify military spending here because of all the jobs it creates, but like depending on how progressive and liberal you are on the issue of military spending, it's like, how many more nuclear submarines do we actually need? The best parallel that I have to your the Formula One is, and again, we don't know. We don't know the money that flows with, between the Pentagon and Connecticut, but it's certainly uh, our foothold into American politics is the war machine that comes out of our jet engines and nuclear submarines. Taking that point around Amazon, but more so the Grand Prix, the sporting teams that we talked about before, you talked about some of the complexity and the importance of government when it's dealing with the private sector developing a business case, developing a strategy about what they're trying to achieve in entering into these arrangements. What might some of the issues in the business case look like as a matter of sort of fundamental principle? What should be the non-negotiables? Well, you definitely have to have some level of a community wealth building plan. 
I would argue Amazon by and large is incompatible with that. I would love to see community work plans, community benefits plans. None of these things exist. Jobs aren't good enough anymore. The idea of jobs as being the metric of success is just not good anymore. Your ultimate solution is getting more into employee ownership, uh, workers, cooperatives, things like that. This is what you're seeing with the great resignation, right? People are becoming freelancers and they're sick of it. They're sick of being abused. Amazon is seemingly an easy target in this conversation, right? It's the extreme wealth of the company juxtaposed against the way that they treat their employees, which is documented. You'll hear people say that it's great or fine or whatever. These are great jobs, but it's backbreaking labor for most people working for Amazon. And I'm also hearing you say that there's a social capital, social infrastructure analysis around what does, are the surrounding land uses planned effectively? Is there appropriate community connection and open space? Is transport, will transport be enhanced? I mean, I would even transcend any of the economic arguments around the jobs. And I mean, even if they paid everybody fantastic money, it comes down to like, culturally, do you want to be a company town? I live in Coltsville in Hartford, named after the Colt gun manufacturing, whose corruption and business dealings has shaped the entire community to operate in this deceptive way for a century now. Like it's the way Connecticut does business is shadow of how Samuel Colt did business. That is just who we are. And it's not great. And now do we want to be an Amazon company town where of a city or metro region of 200,000 people, 30,000 people are Amazon workers? Like, what? Is that who we want to be? Thomas, the city that doesn't take Amazon, that's not a company town, that is a creative city that actually values well-being and sustainability. What does that look like? What are the key ingredients? A lot of it is just independence and freedom, right? This sustainability, stability, security that allows the community to flourish on its own feet, where the local economy is thriving, where shopping local matters, that even prosperity can be oppressive. Even Amazon bringing in these jobs and supplying short-term economic stability for people is still oppressive in a way that it puts a ceiling on cultural pride, right? There's only so much joy you're gonna have out of being an Amazon worker day to day. A successful town in my mind has the infrastructure for multi-generational prosperity. And that's, it's complicated, right? It's culture, it's education, it's industry, but it starts from a place of shared values of like, that's who we want to be. Thomas, thank you for that conversation between Hartford, Connecticut and Melbourne, Australia. There's so much of value to communities the world over in your messaging around community development and social enterprise. And good luck too as your legal matter proceeds through the courts. For updates on Thomas's work at Civic Mind in the USA, including on the Dillon Stadium matter, you can go to www.civicmind.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. 
And if you liked the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.